Welcome to Practical Christian Living. We now have a sacrifice that was given once and for all where their sacrifices had to be given over and over and over and over and over again. Jesus gave it once. And so now he turns to the topic of the importance or the necessity of the death of someone for sin. Death is a reality for all of us. But when Jesus died on the cross for us, he took the punishment for our sin. He paid the price for us so that we could have eternal life after death with him. With more on why Jesus had to die and his amazing sacrifice all for us, here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary Tucson, with Hebrews chapter 9, verses 16 through 28. Father, we want to thank you again for your word. Uh, truly, the waters of your word run deep. We thank you for passages like this that help us to have a good understanding of something that is absolutely incredible, but we, we may struggle in grasping, comprehending the awesomeness of the principle. And Lord, we pray that we would, as we leave this place today, by the work of your spirit, have a solid understanding of what this text is all about. That, that's our heart. That's our desire. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The title of our message today is One Death to End Them All. And that is a good description of the death of Jesus on the cross. There was one death so that you and I could be set free from death. The Bible says that uh, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you're wondering how bad sin is, I, I think we live in a time when we don't feel like sin is that bad. We feel like certainly not our sin is that bad, but the wages of sin is death. If you want to look at how bad sin is, just look at what the wages of sin are, and perhaps you'll get a little bit of understanding. Now, the question, did Jesus have to die? Was there, was there something else that could have been done for you and I to be saved? Is a question that, that comes up periodically. And I think it's important for us to have a good understanding because even Jesus asked this question. Did you know that? Do you remember that when he was in the garden, before he was arrested, beaten, brutalized, and crucified, he prayed three times. He'd gone, prayed, went back out to his disciples, came back, prayed again, went back out and prayed again. And the Bible says that he prayed with such fervency that his sweat fell like great drops of blood upon the ground. And he prayed three times, Lord, if there is any other way, take this cup from me. He knew what was coming. And he said, if there's anything else that can be done, then take this cup away from me. But Jesus went to the cross and eventually was resurrected and has victory over death. The Bible says the last enemy to be vanquished is death. Wouldn't it be great if it was the first enemy to be vanquished? One day, Jesus is coming back. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, behold, I tell you a mystery. We are not all going to sleep. We're not all going to die. But some in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye are going to be changed. 
We all have an appointment for death. The Bible says, we're going to see that in our text today. It is appointed once for man to die, and then comes judgment. But some are going to escape that appointment. Some are going to be set free, and it's because Jesus went to the cross. And we gain eternal life because Jesus went to the cross. Now, the book of Hebrews is written to the early Christians who were mostly Jewish, and they had received Jesus and his work upon the cross, the sacrifice that he had given. But some false teachers came along and began to tell them that Jesus wasn't enough, that they needed to return to the temple. They needed to return to the giving of sacrifices of lambs and calves and doves, that they needed to return to the high priests of their day. And, and to the chagrin of the author of the book of Hebrews, they were believing it. They were saying, yeah, you're right. It isn't enough. And we've seen that he has painstakingly shown us that the, the law not only cannot be compared to the sacrifice of Jesus, but the law and all of its sacrifices and everything that it did is obsolete because of Jesus. We now have a sacrifice that was given once and for all where their sacrifices had to be given over and over and over and over and over again. Jesus gave it once. And so now he turns to the topic of the importance or the necessity of the death of someone for sin. In fact, there's one key verse here, and it is the last part of verse 22. You may want to highlight this or underline it. It says near the end of verse 22 in chapter 9, it says, without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Now, your translation may say, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's what the word remission means. There is no doing away with sin without remission. He begins with an example. The example is of a will. When someone writes a will, that will doesn't go into effect until someone dies. So we pick it up in verse 16. Excuse me. Yeah, verse 16 of chapter 9. It says, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testor. Now, the word testament there is also the word for covenant. Uh, we have the New Testament and the Old Testament. We have the New Covenant and we have the Old Covenant. So where there is a testament, there must by necessity be the death of the person that gives that testament. In the Old Testament, there was the death of bulls and goats and animals and sacrifices. And in the New Testament, there is the death of Jesus. Jesus said, behold, I give you a new covenant or a New Testament, same word. Behold, I give you a new covenant to love one another. And Jesus dies, therefore, signifying that that covenant or that testament is now legitimate in taking part. The example here is of a will. You have a, are you written in a will? When someone dies, you're going to receive an inheritance. Maybe you've written out a will and you've taken everything that you've worked for for all of those years and you have left it to your children who are going to blow through it in about two months after you're gone. All your work to save it and they're going to go, new car! And it's, it's all going to be done. But that's the idea, that there is of necessity an importance for death. And then he shows us that the Old Testament, even this Old Testament, and I love the way it's worded here. For look, at, look at verse 18. Therefore, well, let's read 17 first. For a testament is in force after men are dead. 
since it has no power at all while the testor lives. Verse 18, therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. It kind of shows us his heart towards the first covenant, that it is obsolete, that it was imperfect, that he couldn't bring righteousness. Therefore, even the first testament was confirmed in blood. How important is it that there is blood to confirm the testament? Even this first obsolete, weak, imperfect covenant was confirmed in blood. And he explains how in verse 19. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all of the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all of the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of ministry. And according to the law, all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. It was a very bloody work. It was a very gory work. They built this temple. It had all kinds of purples and reds and golds in it. The, uh, the, all the furniture in the tabernacle was covered in gold. Moses came down with the, the first five books of the Pentateuch. You and I have a heart for the word of God, not because we have a heart for the paper or that we have a heart for the ink. Years ago, I was trying to make the point that this book that I have is not sacred. That these words speak of Jesus and that relationship we have with Jesus is sacred. And so during the teaching, wanting to show that the book wasn't sacred, I tossed my Bible and it hit and kind of flumped and all crumpled up. And I immediately felt really bad. <laughs> I immediately felt like, and I, I, the only service I did it in, I went over, let me pick up my Bible now. I picked up my Bible. I threw my Bible. <laughs> now we may have a fondness for the word of God, but it is what the word of God says that is important. But can you imagine the actual writing? Moses gets up and gives the law, the first five books of the Bible, and then they write them out into a book. Can you imagine how, how wouldn't we love to see it? It's been long lost. It's been long gone. But if we found it, could you imagine that if we found the actual copy that Moses wrote, how amazing that would be? And it says here that he took that book and he put it down and he took hyssop. Hyssop is a plant and uh, hyssop as a plant represents grace, by the way. And he dipped it in this mixture of blood and water and scarlet thread and all those things that meant something. He dipped it in that blood and he sprinkled the book. He sprinkled blood on the book and he sprinkled blood on the tabernacle and he sprinkled blood on the vessels, the furniture in the tabernacle. And he sprinkled blood on the people. Do you imagine coming to church? <laughs> and I get the blood of some javelina I killed last week and I <laughs> dip it in and start spraying. I got to think these first few rows would probably be pretty barren if we sprinkled you guys with blood every week. Either that or you guys would come into church in your yellow rain gear. All right. <laughs> a little hood on. Okay, I'm ready. Go ahead and sprinkle me now. Tell me, why was it so gory? Why the sacrifice of an animal? When you think about the tabernacle, when you think about the sacrifices, they were done daily. When you think about the specific smell of blood, any of you guys hunters killed an animal? Some of you guys are hunters. You've never killed anything, all right? But for those of you who are hunters, 
reminds me of a joke. I think I have time to tell this joke. I'm going to tell you this joke. It has nothing to do with the text. It has to do with hunters. So there are three guys that, that die and go to heaven. Uh, one of them, the first one goes up to the pearly gates, and uh, St. Peter says, um, what's your IQ? He says, 140. He says, oh, 140. Did you get your PhD? He said, yes, I did. He says, enter in the joy of the Lord. He says to the second guy, what's your IQ? He says, about 110. He says, oh, did you get your master's? Yes, I did. Well, enter into the joy of the Lord. Third guy comes up and says, uh, what's, your, what's your IQ? He says, 70. He says, did you get your deer? <laughs> all right, anyway. So just a little bit of a hunter joke there, all right? Um, so... I'll never get it back now, will I? All right. So it's a very gory process to slaughter an animal. The first time that I ever did it, I began to hunt when I was 35. There's a friend of mine. He still attends the church. In fact, he may be here today. Um, him and another friend who had hunted a lot decided to teach me and Ernest Finklia, Jr., who was one of our assistant pastors at the time, how to hunt. So they helped me go out and pick a gun and I picked out a super Red Hawk 44 Magnum and I put a scope on it and I, I, I put in for a ham hunt. It's a handgun or muzzleloader uh, kind of a hunt. So I had my handgun and, and, and here's what these, these expert hunters did. There's four of us, two guys that know what they're doing and two guys that don't. They put us two together, me and Ernest, and sent us out. <laughs> I know now what they were doing. They were like, these guys are going to get in our way. Let's get rid of them. We'll kill our animals, and then we'll see if we can get them one. Well, I went over, uh, and Ernest, when Ernest got out of the, 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 uh, the tent that morning, actually, we showed up, we drove, drove out, but he showed up, and I'm telling you, he had five guns. He had like, I don't know if what gun I want to shoot him with, whether it's my muzzle loader or this pistol or that pistol or this. He had like five guns. So after about a half hour of hiking, he was like, I got to figure out something better with these guns. And so I go, I'm going to go look over here. So I went and I sat down on the edge of a cliff and Havelina ran out from under me. So I'm like, there they are. Now, the thing about Havelina, when deer, their, their response to trouble is flight. That's what makes deer so difficult to hunt. When you scare them, spook them, or they smell you, boom, they go. And you see them running away. Havelina are different. Their fear response is to freeze. Oop. Maybe they won't see me which turns them into a great target. I've, I've said before, they were built for archery hunting. Oh, there he is, you know. So this, these javelina run out, and then they freeze. All of them are like, something's wrong. I smell somebody, something's wrong. Freeze. So that poor javelina. I shot him five times with my 44 Magnum. Those, the guys who knew what they were doing didn't even tell me where to shoot them. They never even said, when you see them, you know, you want to shoot them behind. You want to shoot them behind the shoulders, by the way. You want to get a double lung. It's pretty quick. You want to do that. Now I know that. Then I didn't. So then I go down there, and now I'm standing over it. Now, it's me and Ernest, and we've never hunted before, never cleaned an animal. And i got to clean it. And the Bible says that a righteous man eats what he kills. So this shot-up javelina is now in my future. In burritos, javelina burritos which are not very good, <laughs> especially when they have been shot up. Now, I've killed some javelina since then, and I've learned to donate them to sportsmen for hunger. Give them somebody else to eat. That's the truth. All right, so we, we, we carry this pig, and it's kind of funny because we didn't know how to carry it, so we tied up its legs, and we got a stick, and we ran it through, and we carried it like the children of Israel carrying grapes. We carried our pig. <laughs> And we carried it up to where we were supposed to meet with the guys who knew what they were doing, and they didn't show up. 
they end up, I think, picking up the very herd that I scared and ran off forever, and they followed it forever. And so finally, I just had to get the knife and go to town. And it was an ugly thing. There was a lot of gagging that took place because... Ideally, you want to be able to clean the animal out and keep all the organs intact and not, you know, you just don't want to mess with it. Ideally, um, it was a mess because I shot it five times with a 44 Magnum. And uh, all of that to say that they, they slaughtered animals regularly in the tabernacle. And all of that should tell us of how bad sin is. That's why he sprinkled blood on all of these things and on the book and on the people. That's why it was so bloody. That's why it was so gory, because it tells us how bad sin is. See, I think that we have a tendency in the days in which we live to think that sin is not all that bad. We have a feeling that we're living in a progressive society. A technology is increasing. We're gaining better understanding and knowledge all of the time. And therefore, we're understanding what's good and what's bad and what you can do and what you can't do and morally the right and wrong things to do. And people are trying to rewrite morals. But you do understand that where we are in the world today with our acceptance of moral or immoral things is nowhere near as bad as it's gotten in the past. There are some Greek cultures and especially the Roman culture where the morals were much worse than what they are today. When you are a moral individual and people say, well, you're old fashioned, it's not really true. The person who is really old fashioned is the person that doesn't have morals, is the person that doesn't care about morals at all. Because you go back to these societies that were destroyed because of their lack of morals and, and morals within society is a pendulum that constantly swings. It swings one way and then gets to the extreme and then swings the other way and gets to the extreme and swings back the other way. We're just in that process of that pendulum swinging now and it's on that upswing. We have a tendency to think that sin isn't that bad. But listen, and I quoted it already, the wages of sin is death. The Bible tells us that sin is destructive. God doesn't want you to sin not because God wants to ruin your fun, not because God doesn't want you to do something that you enjoy, but because it's destructive. Do you believe that? The Bible in the book of Proverbs talks about a young man who goes by the corner of the house of a harlot. And he says that young man didn't know that his very life was being destroyed as he went there. God didn't want him to go there, not because he wanted to ruin his fun, but because that is destruction and ends up in destruction. Sin is death. Sin is deceptive. Sin brings destruction. And so God would keep us from that. If you want to know how bad sin is, then just look at the wages. It's death. All of us have been touched by death. It was only months ago that I watched my wife take her very last breath and I saw the result of sin. Not saying that it was some sin that brought her to that place, but sin in general that brings death for all of us. Some people breathe their last breath when they're very young and some when they're old. Uh, the disciples, out of all of the disciples, James and John were brothers. James was the first of the disciples to be killed shortly after Jesus as a young man. And John died when he was an old man. None of us are guaranteed a certain amount of time but death, which again, all of us have had touch our lives, is the wages of sin. Now, the death of Jesus as well. Have you ever wondered why the death of Jesus had to be so severe? Why was he beaten beyond looking like a man? When he was arrested, he went into five trials. At the fifth trial, it was 
taken by the Roman guard, the Praetorium. They put a bag over his head and they punched him saying, prophesy, which one of us hit you? They put a crown of thorns upon his head. They mocked him and they beat him with their fists and they beat him with rods. And the Bible says in the book of Isaiah that he no longer looked like a man. His beard had been torn from his face and he had been beaten so severely that he didn't look like a man. Then he was scourged, which is to be beat with 39 lashes with a cat of nine tails. Then he carried the cross up Golgotha or the hill Calvary and they stretched his arms out on that cross and the hammer fell on the nails and they drove through his flesh into that tree and they hung him up between heaven and earth. It was brutal and it was bloody. In the movie, The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson wanted to, he said this in an interview, I wanted to take people up to the very edge of the cliff and then I wanted to shove them off. He wanted it to go so far that you had to look away. That's what he said. Now, if you saw The Passion of the Christ, anybody here see it? I saw it. I saw it one time. That's all I wanted to see. It was one time. I think he accomplished that. There was certainly a time when I wanted to look away. As I looked around the room, I saw many people with their head in their hands blocking the view of the screen. He brought you to that point. And yet, as I looked at, what was it, Jim Caviezel? Was that the, the actor? As I, Caviezel, thank you. Uh, as I looked at him at the end, he still looked like a man to me. He still had not been beaten to that place. The death of Jesus was, was worse than that. Why? Because of sin. The Bible says, Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. James tells us that if we say we love him, we want to keep his commandments. There's a heart and there's a desire for purity. And when we realize that we have been set free from sin, uh, the Bible says the last enemy to be destroyed is death and we have been set free from it by the work that Jesus did upon the cross. Why did Jesus have to die? The end of verse 22, because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in which in the heavens should be purified with these but the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifice than these. He's back to his topic he introduced earlier in the book of Hebrews, and that was that the tabernacle is a shadow, a type, a copy, blueprints of a temple, a tabernacle that is up in heaven. And that where the heavenly priest went into the earthly tabernacle, Jesus went into the heavenly tabernacle. And where the earthly tabernacle was sprinkled with the blood of bulls and goats and calves, the heavenly tabernacle was sprinkled with the blood of the Messiah. That's all he's saying in verse 23. Read it again. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in heaven, the heavens, or the copies of the things in the heavens, should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifice than these. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Once he gave that sacrifice upon the cross, once he was beaten, once he was bloodied, he appeared before God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have to suffer often since the foundations of the world, but now once at the end of the ages, he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
It was sin that Jesus put away when he died upon the cross. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on Kagan 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.